Welcome to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me. Friends, today we begin an examination of the book of Romans. Likely, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you have heard a pastor or someone talk about how important Romans is. You know, Romans is what Augustine was reading when he became a Christian. Romans is what Martin Luther uh, was reading when he became a Christian. Apparently, John Wesley was just sitting in on a Bible study where someone read an introduction to a commentary on Romans, and that was enough for him to become a Christian. So this is obviously an incredibly important book. The depth of the riches of this book could not be explored in a lifetime's worth of podcasts. Uh, But I am excited to just survey the land so that you can spend the rest of your life reading the book of Romans. It's worth a lifetime of study and of memorization. So let's orient ourselves to where we are historically before we jump in and examine the text itself. The pivotal event for us that we always want to start sort of as a touchstone is the death and resurrection of Jesus. This took place, roughly speaking, in AD 33. Paul was converted to Christianity not long after. He then spent about 14 or 15 years doing ministry, primarily in the port city of Antioch, where the Christians were first called Christians, and there was this international community. And it was from Antioch that Paul was sent out on his first missionary journey, where he planted the churches in Galatia, for example. Paul then came home and then went to Jerusalem, where we held what was called the Jerusalem Council. In the Jerusalem Council, it was decided once and for all in AD 48 that God's word said from beginning to end that entrance into the kingdom of God was by grace, through faith in Jesus, not through law keeping. Paul then goes out on his second missionary journey where he's going to start the church in Corinth. While he's out on this journey, he's going to meet a husband and wife named Priscilla and Aquila. They have been recently exiled from Rome as all Jews have been expelled from Rome. Paul then goes back to Antioch, and he goes out on a third missionary journey. It's on this third missionary journey uh, that Paul wrote the letter to Romans from the city of Corinth. Now, Paul had never been to Rome when he wrote this letter. He knows many of the people in this city, as I think in chapter 16, like 35 people are greeted by name. But when he's writing this letter, most of the people in the city he has never met. So who wrote it? Paul. Paul wrote it, and he wrote it to the church in Rome. When did he write it? Probably around AD 57. And again, Paul was in Corinth. The question we want to ask ourselves is, why did Paul write this letter? Well, Paul tells us why he wants to visit Rome. And this letter is a part of his visit. And he says he wants to visit Rome to not only strengthen them and to receive encouragement from them, but also to have a harvest among them. He says, for I long to see that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm sure he's speaking spiritually to some degree that there's a harvest of encouragement, but he also wants financial support because Paul's heart is to get the gospel to Spain, where it's never been. But don't be mistaken here. Paul loves brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul says he wants to come to them, yes, to strengthen them, to teach them, to have a harvest of financial support, but also just to enjoy their company. Paul loves people who love Jesus. He says in Romans 15, 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. That's not idle flattery. Paul really says, I can't wait to meet you guys. I've heard so many amazing things about you from Priscilla and Aquila, and I can't wait to be with you. Paul also wrote this letter to remind the Romans of truths they already knew. 
Now, among these truths were the fact that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, right? So Paul shares the gospel with Jews, with Gentiles, with whoever, but he was specifically appointed by Jesus to take the gospel into Gentile contexts and regions that had not yet heard of Jesus. And Paul says, quite simply, I need your help. I need to get to Spain in the Western Mediterranean because no one's been there yet with the gospel and I need your help. So Paul has been evangelizing the Eastern Mediterranean world and he's been doing this from Antioch. Antioch was one of the two or three biggest cities of the ancient world. It was a strategic location where Paul could have access to Greece, where he could have access to what we would call Turkey or Asia Minor and even to the North Coast of Africa. Paul could have access to all of these places. But now the gospel has fairly well been established in the Eastern Mediterranean, and Paul is looking west. And so it's thought, and I think it's likely, that Paul wants Rome to be his new Antioch. He wants Rome to be his new launching point for ministry in the Western Mediterranean. Let me read to you Romans 15, 26 through 29. Paul says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to contribute to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Right? So you're going to help me get to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So here's a possible, very possible, not, you know, absolute certain. Here's a possible single overarching purpose for why Paul wrote Romans to infuse the Roman church with urgency, to crystallize, to really get a firm grasp on their doctrinal values and adjust their church life so that the gospel would be proclaimed. I'm going to read that again. To infuse the Roman church with urgency. So Paul wants them to be urgent. Urgent about what? Be urgent about the business of getting a firm grasp, getting a clear picture in your mind about what the teaching of the gospel is and about what your life should look like, all for the purpose of the gospel being proclaimed. So we want, in the end, the gospel to be proclaimed. How is the gospel going to be proclaimed? Well, if people's lives also proclaim the gospel. We need verbal and sort of lived-out gospel proclamation. Well, how is that going to happen? Well, only if people are clear about what the gospel teaches and demands. Well, how is that going to happen? Well, only if we approach understanding the gospel with a sense of urgency. So first comes the urgency, then comes the understanding and the wrestling with, then comes the living out, then comes the gospel proclamation. So Paul wants it all. So here's the theological breakdown of Romans, roughly speaking. Chapters 1 through 4 show us the desperate sickness of the world and God's remedy for the world. And Paul does this. He begins with the bad news to impress upon the church the need and urgency in spraying the gospel. Like, So why does Paul want to go to Spain in the first place? What's the big deal about going where the gospel hasn't been proclaimed? Because people are dying and going to hell without the gospel. Chapters 5 through 8, Paul dives deep into the enormous privileges that believers possess. And I think this is in part to help encourage believers to support his ministry. Chapters 9 through 11, Paul answers a possible objection. And he answers an objection that might take the form of asking a question about the faithfulness of God. After all, why go to all this trouble to share the gospel if God isn't faithful? Chapters 12 through 16, we return again to our oft-mentioned, dearly beloved topic of church unity. Like an athlete competing with an injury, a church 
just absolutely racked with strife and disunity isn't efficient in delivering the gospel. And so Paul wants all of the body of Christ, like the body of an athlete, working in harmony to proclaim the gospel. So with that being established, let's go ahead and take a look at our first theme in the book of Romans. And that is Paul in Romans impressed the church with the world's spiritual desperation. Now, to say that Paul was obsessed with his ministry, excited about his ministry, is a massive understatement. Paul mentioned his call to evangelize the Gentiles three times in the first 17 verses of Romans alone. He says in verse 5 of chapter 1, through whom, speaking of Christ, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. In verse 9, Paul says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. And then verse 13, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul loves the ministry he's been given. And the main themes of Paul's ministry are indicated by verses that bookend the entire letter. It's what we call framing, when an author begins and ends a literary unit with the same phrase. He's, he's showing you something important about what comes in between it. So if you look at the very beginning of Romans, you see Romans 1.5. Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. For what purpose? Why has Paul been chosen? Why has he been given this commission? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Chapter 16, verse 26, all the way at the very end of the letter. It says, the gospel has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. Why has God done this? To bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience that flows from faith. Faith transforming human hearts, bringing about obedience. That's what Paul's ministry is all about. Paul believes that a true grasp and a true loyalty, a true trusting in the gospel would bring about changed lives all to the glory of God. And that's what Paul is after. Nothing less than God being glorified through sinners being transformed to lead fruitful and abundant lives. And in between these two verses, Paul explains the beautiful truths of the gospel. But Paul begins in a fairly counterintuitive way to us. He begins his good news with bad news. And the bad news is why we need a gospel in the first place. So Paul addresses two groups to show how they, and therefore all people, need the gospel. Paul says there's really only two kinds of people apart from Christ. The first group is the openly rebellious. So after a 17-verse introduction, Paul begins sort of the, the message of the letter in Romans chapter 1, 18. And he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul says that God's wrath is coming and it deserves to come because people are unrighteous, they are ungodly, and in their unrighteousness and ungodliness, they suppress the truth. Well, what truth? What truth have we all suppressed? Paul says people have rejected what they know of God in creation. Romans 1, 18 through 23 says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We have rejected what we know. I think it's helpful for me to read to you just the first few verses of Psalm 19. Here's what Psalm 19 says. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all their earth and their words to the end of the world. Psalm 19, one through four says that 24, seven, 365 creation speaks to us and creation says God made me. God made me. God made you. God is amazing. God is powerful. God is wise. Worship him. That's what creation says 24 7, 365. Day to day, night to night. Well, how effective are they? How effective is creation? Perfectly, 100%. There is no speech nor other words whose voice is not heard. So every day creation says this, and every single day, every single person on planet hears creation say this. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So Psalm 19 says 24, 7, 365 to every single person, every single day, creation without fail says loud and clear, emphatically, God made me. He is good. He is wise. He is powerful. Worship him. And Romans chapter one says every single day, man looks up at creation and says, no, I will not worship him. I will not. And so Paul says we suppress the truth. We push down the truth that we all know. Friends, in the final analysis, there are no atheists. Every single person knows that God exists, that God made them, that they owe their allegiance, their worship to God. And every single one of us without fail from the moment of our birth, we say no. We suppress the truth. And so Paul says we are without excuse. We know God, but we don't honor him. We don't give thanks to him. And therefore we become futile in our thinking. We become fools. Our hearts are darkened. And therefore we worship images. We are all made as worshipers. We cannot help it. We can't stop ourselves from worshiping. We were made to worship God. In our sin, we do not want to bow before God. So we make something that looks like ourselves so that we can simply worship ourselves. And therefore we experience the judgment of God. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul says the judgment of God, friends, doesn't always look like hellfire and brimstone like in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes the judgment of God is God looking at us and saying, have it your way. And so you're going to see this phrase, this handing over. Paul says, God looks at sinful man, the openly rebellious, and says, you want it, you got it. And he gives them over into this downward spiral of sin and depravity and darkness and wickedness. Romans 1, 24 through 32. Therefore, because we rejected the glory of God and worship created things, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts 
with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is what, when you look around at your culture today, whether you are listening from Nigeria or from Panama, whether you're listening in Canada or whether you're listening in America, when you look around at your culture and you say, what is happening? Romans 1 is happening. God is giving people up to their lust, giving people up to their dishonorable passions, giving people up to a debased mind, and the downward spiral is going faster and faster and getting darker and darker. Now, I said that Paul said all people can be divided into two groups. And the first is the openly rebellious. There's another group, though, the religious. And the religious, whether it's Judaism or paganism, like the, the moral and virtuous Romans, the Stoics, who might be sitting there nodding their head as Paul says this in Romans 1, saying, yeah, people are awful. Good thing we're not like that. In chapter 2, Paul shifts his focus to them. And he says, they do the exact same thing, but the religious are just better at covering it up. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So every one of you who is over there nodding your head saying, Yeah, Paul, get him. He says, You don't have an excuse. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So the religious commit the same sins, and in fact, they violate their own standards, Jewish standards. Romans 2, 12 through 13, For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. But you Jews, all you who have sinned under the law, having heard the law, you're going to be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. You going to synagogue and hearing the law read does you no good. It's the doers of the law who will be justified, declared right before God. So the religious violate their own standards. Jewish people violate their own standards. And Gentiles violate their own standards. Romans 2, 14 through 15, Paul says, When Gentiles who do not have the law, so talking about Gentiles who do not have the law of Moses, like Jews do, they by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Now, let me just unpack that a little bit. Paul is saying, Gentiles have not heard the Ten Commandments. They didn't hear, Thou shalt not steal or murder or kill and honor your father and mother. And yet, because God made us all in his image and God put his law on all of our hearts, when Gentiles set up societies, they set them up basically according to the law of Moses, even though they don't have the law. And verse 15 says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So even a Gentile who's never heard of Moses or Abraham or David, a Gentile who's never seen the Ten Commandments, because God wrote the law on their hearts, on the hearts of all mankind, they know that murder is wrong. They know that lying is wrong. And so when a Gentile lies, his conscience convicts him. 
And when a Gentile is honest and does something good, his conscience affirms him. And Paul says the fact that this happens shows that even Gentiles know the law of God and they are judged because they violate the law of God that they know about. Friends, in the end, God is going to judge people based on their actions. The key verses in this section are Romans 2, 6 and 12. Verse 6 says, He, God, will render to each one according to his works. And verse 12 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So Jews and Gentiles, the openly rebellious and the outwardly religious are all in an equally bad position. And friends, if I may, this is a painful, painful topic. But these verses also show that even those who have never heard the gospel are condemned before God. God judges people because they have rejected what they do know about him and creation. And beyond that, he judges people because they violate their own moral standards, whether or not they consciously reject Jesus. Just imagine with me for a moment, a person who's never heard the gospel and they die and they appear before God. And God says, well, have you trusted in my son Jesus for salvation? And they say, no, well, but I've never heard of Jesus. And God says to them, okay, okay, well, tell me this. Do you have like a moral code? Do you have like something that you know is right and wrong? And the person says, well, of course. I mean, all people have that, which is true. All people have that. And God says, okay, well, have you perfectly kept your own moral code? Forget about my law. Forget about my son Jesus. Have you kept your code perfectly? And the person's going to have to look at God and say, no. And God's going to say to them, well, I will render each one according to his works. And your works are sin. And what I render for sin is death. Depart from me. I never knew you. This is why Paul desperately wants the gospel to get to Spain, to all the ends of the earth. Because people are perishing and they are perishing apart from Christ, apart from the hope of the gospel. So here's the diagnosis. For the openly religious, for the rebellious, for the Jew, for the Gentile, Romans 3, 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Every one of us, from our head to our feet, inside and outside, guilty and condemned. Every one of us has failed to keep the moral code that God gave to all humanity. Yes, the Jews may have had it on laws written on tablets of stone. That actually gives them even less excuse. But all people know that God exists, know that we ought to worship God and know right and wrong. And we have all rejected God and we have all gone our own way. And we are all in an absolutely desperate, helpless state. And friends, that's how we have to present the gospel. We've got to start with the bad news so that the good news can be seen for just how good it truly is. And that, Lord willing, is what we'll examine the next time we're together, the good news of the gospel. But for now, take up and read, my friends. God bless.